Hello and welcome to Carnivorous Chats. My name is James, your host. I started this podcast to help other folks share their own healing stories and to interview thought leaders and experts in the carnivore, keto, and low oxalate space. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to Equip Foods and the Carnivore Bar. As an affiliate, you can use the link in the show notes to get a discount on their products when you check out using the code CARNIVOROUS. Thanks in advance for listening, subscribing, and any likes or shares. And now, on with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carnivorous Chats. It's James, your host. I am super excited to have this guest joining me today on the show. This guest is profoundly impactful in my own journey, and I will explain why later on, but has also been so impactful on so many other folks' journey that have found a way out of vegetarianism and vegan diets to adding animal foods back in. The author is an advocate. She's an activist. And she's just an all-around cool human being. Lierre Keith, <laughs> welcome to Carnivorous Chats. Well, thanks for having me on. That was a very sweet introduction. Well, I, I really meant everything that I said, Lierre. Um, I was mentioning to you offline that I wish I had found your book when I, in 2014, made my foray into the vegan diet, which lasted six years and my health went off a cliff and the listeners know that. Yeah. However, since reading your book and having read it a couple of times now, it has been tremendously helpful for me to just reinforce the decision that I made to add animal foods back on. Not that gaining my health back wasn't enough of a decision anyhow, right. but you do wrestle as an ex-vegan like myself and yourself with some of the things that had been ingrained into you during that time in your life. So what I wanted to start out with, Lierre, if it's okay with you, is just an overview of the impetus on, on writing the vegetarian myth specifically. I know you have other books out there. Why did you feel it necessary at that time? 2009, I was, I believe it was when you first wrote it. Just an incredible, incredible read. And if you could share with the listeners, what was the impetus behind it and sort of some of the things that, that transpired? Well, I had been a vegan for 20, just about 20 years when I stopped. And like most of us, uh, my health had failed catastrophically. And some of that is just permanent damage. You, you don't do it this long and get away unscathed. So... Um, but it was a hard moment to realize that I was wrong about pretty much everything that I thought. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know this, it's just, everything collapses on you. Like you don't understand. It's like your place in the cosmos doesn't make any sense anymore. Like you just have, it's like, there's no steady ground. There's just nothing stable and that's very hard. So it took a year or two for me to sort of climb out of that. And I found really good information that was extremely helpful. I had uh, the local Western Price Foundation people were great. And I, you know, found I was on some uh, Facebook, this is before Facebook, um, some, I guess we used to have online forums, I guess those are all gone now, but I found some really good forums for people who were sort of in a similar situation and were trying to understand, you know, what is the proper nutrition for the human template. And a lot of people already had really good answers for me. So it was all completely different than what I completely on the opposite end of what I thought, you know, being a vegan was the right thing. So all of that I had to reinvestigate. And then I had all these larger questions too about, well, what is agriculture and why did people start doing it? And in fact, was this a good thing? Maybe in fact, this is where the problem starts. And so all of this is like sort of, you know, swirling around in my brain. And then there was just the sort of the, how horrible it was for me to have to take that first bite of meat. And that was very traumatizing. It took months for me to be, for that just to fade and just become sort of normal. It took a long time because I had been 
I mean, really, it's like being in a cult like for some of us. I mean, it really is. So it was it was really hard to, to get back out of that. So then, uh, you know, you sort of put your worldview back together. And I saw all the ways that I was wrong when I was a vegan. And and I am very clear that it's not that wasn't the ethical stance that was wrong. Like the values that I was trying to embody uh, are exactly right. And really, those are the values that we need to get to the world that we want. It's just that I didn't have enough information to make the correct choice. And this is why the vegans hate me is because <laughs> I'm not giving up that hill. So we're playing king of the castle up here, you know, like who's right. <laughs> and I think they would, they would just be able to dismiss me a lot easier, a lot more easily if I was just to say, oh yeah, animals are stupid. Who cares? Do whatever you want to them. They don't count. And I don't say that. Like I'm still claiming the same moral ground. I'm just saying, you know, you don't have full information here. You think you do, but you don't. And if I, if you can listen to me for 15 minutes, I can walk you through this. Um, and I ended up doing that over and over again, because of course, everywhere you go in life, you're going to bump into these people, especially in the sort of world that I live in. You know, there's everybody is still, especially the young ones, they're trying to be vegetarian, they're trying to be vegan, and they're really suffering. You know, and like the, in the first two minutes of the conversation, they'll be like, oh, every time I eat soy, the stomach ache is so horrible. I'm like, you're already telling yourself what you already know. You don't even have to have this conversation with me. You know, this food is killing you and they're exhausted and they're starving and they're desperate. And they don't they don't know why. Like, why did why isn't this working? This is supposed to work. So after a while, after a few years of that, I got honestly tired of having that conversation over and over again. It's like, yeah, I can reach them one by one. And sometimes we'll be sitting there for two hours and I do basically talk them around. I mean, they, they get it if I lay it all out, but you know, the thing is we don't have slogans. We have actual information and it takes a while to absorb all that information. And it's from a lot of different fronts because you've got the nutritional part. Um, you've got the environmental part. You've got the sort of moral ethical part, and then you've got the political part. So all of these, you know, I have an answer to, but I can't do it in slogans. I mean, they've got meat is murder. It's a great slogan. We don't have anything like that. It's like, yeah, I can't do it in a soundbite. This is actual information and you are actually going to have to grapple with it. You know, if you want to understand what's, what's really going on on, on the planet. Um, and then it's going to take time because it's going to affect pretty deeply. I mean, the thing about being a vegan is it's never just what you eat, right? It becomes who you are. And this is why it's so hard to engage with this counter information is because it feels like a threat to your very self, your sense of self. And it's very scary. I have had so many people say to me, I got your book somehow, somebody sent it to them or they bought it. And then it sat on my shelf for two years. I was too afraid to pick it up. And I would have been that person. I would have been very, very afraid to engage with this. Why are we afraid to read a book? Now I know if I feel afraid to read a book, I need to just read that book, you know, because if I'm wrong about something, this is the grown up approach. I need to engage with it because one of two things will happen. Either I will be challenged and that's good because then I can try to figure out, well, okay, what information is missing here? What did I not know that I now know? Is this information true? How do I know it's true? Hmm. Like what backs this up? What doesn't back it up? What else can I you know, what do I need to grapple with here to find this out? And then you're either wrong about something. So then you can correct your course and that's really good. Or no, this person is wrong in this book and that's okay. I, I can make an argument against it. So I don't need to embrace this, but 
it was good to be challenged. It was good to find out, like, was I right or was I wrong? Is this person right or wrong? That's just being an adult with a mind that still is like functioning um, rather than closed off. We can see around the world what happens when people go fundamentalist. It's never pretty. And I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be so um, ideologically bound that I can't actually engage with other human beings. And part of that is just for myself. I don't, I, it was not pleasant being that person. But also, I mean, kind of on a broad scale, it's the only hope we have. So for me, that's, you know, I, I needed to be able to do that. And so I got, I just got, it got really exhausting having to do this one-on-one. -on -one. And I kept thinking, you know, if I wrote this all town, it would actually be easier because then I could just hand them a book. Um, and it's not that I want to stop having those conversations because I, I really do care about these people. I was them. I know how bad they feel. Um, so that's always going to be a thing that I do. But it's a lot easier just to hand somebody a book and say, on your own terms, read this. It may take you six months to get through it. You're going to have a lot of questions when you're done with it. You may have to read it twice. I'm always available by email. You know, you're welcome to reach out to me again if if you want to discuss some of this. But I think at this point, there's so many other good books about these subjects and sort of, you know, adjacent subjects. If you really, if you really want to know about the farming part of it, the agriculture part, there's so many good books. If you really want to understand the nutrition part of it, lots of good books now. Um, you know, when I jumped into this at age 16, it was like, what year was that? 1981. I mean, I couldn't, there was nothing. And I didn't grow up in a rural area. So I didn't have any way to know that all of this information was incomplete or just completely wrong. I just didn't know. I had no idea where my food came from. So, uh, you know, I lived in this very sort of urban suburban environment. It was all cement, um, a couple of big trees, but that was it. Um, I didn't know. I had no idea what farming did to the planet. I had no idea that agriculture was the problem. So anyway, all of which is to say, I wrote the book because I wanted to reach um, a certain population. I wanted to reach particularly sort of young, um, you know, very engaged, you know, politically aware, uh, those, those people who really want to change the world. And I want to get to them before the vegans do, because if the vegans get them, they're going to waste a decade or two doing something that is utterly, utterly useless for the planet and will do nothing but hurt their bodies. And it's just pointless. There's no reason to suffer. This doesn't work on any level. And I want to get to them before it's too late, because once they're in, it's much, much harder to pull them out. Um, if I can get to them first with this information, then we've got every chance in the world that they'll understand this on the first try. <laughs> and I don't want them to get hurt. You know, they don't need to end up like I did with three degenerative, you know, three autoimmune diseases and a degenerating spine. Like this doesn't need to happen to anybody. So that's one of the main reasons. And then just on a slightly larger um, kind of level, I really want the people who care most about the planet to understand the actual damage. I want them to understand the nature of the problem and the scale of the problem. And as long as they're stuck in vegan world, they can't. They can't engage with it because agriculture is the answer. And I have very bad news for them. Agriculture is the problem. So, you know, we're going to be at loggerheads until they, they can break out of this a little bit and start to listen. And I want their passion. I want them to be putting it in the right place because it's not too late for this planet. But the, we don't have a lot of time left to waste with these solutions that are just completely off. So I, I really want to reach them as well. And that is, you know, mostly environmental movement. Most of them have bought into this. They just don't know better. So that that was kind of made you know, of the sort of the two the two groups of people that I was trying to reach when I wrote the book. So um, I don't know. Has it been successful? I mean, I get plenty of hate mail, so I, I'm definitely poking somebody. But I also get those really sort of heartfelt emails from people who 
you know, it, it helped. It did help. Um, they were stuck in this. Their health was decaying. They were degenerating by the day. They had no idea why. And they didn't know what to do about it. And they sort of in their heart of hearts knew they were going to have to give this up, but they couldn't find a way out. And, you know, if I helped somebody do that, it was worth writing for sure. Cause I was that person and it was a really hard day. So that's my story. <laughs> Pierre, I just want to say thank you to you publicly for writing this book. And I, as I mentioned to you prior that without exception, all of the past vegans that I have interviewed have cited vegetarian myth as being so profoundly impactful and bringing them back to a semblance of health or changing their mindset. So we just want to say thank you to you for your advocacy in this area. You know, interestingly enough, I had Jane Buxton on, who is the author of The Great Plant-Based oh, yeah. Con. Plant -based. And her impetus for writing The Plant-Based Con, obviously very similar to yours, that the, the vociferous noise that was coming around that ironically, same time that I was becoming vegan in 2014 to 16, Game Changers really spurred her on as well. And also right. the fact, and we're going to get into that, is that she really wanted to protect, especially the young women that were falling victim yeah. to this way of eating um, that yeah. was becoming coming from eating disorders and hiding yeah. behind the guise of vegan and vegetarianism, hiding in eating disorder. So we're very thankful for her as well. But, you know, let's dive into Jane eloquently just calls it the three legged stool that the arguments that prop themselves up. And in your book, it's very similar. And the first argument, as we sort of hinted at, is that morality argument that can be very, very challenging to uh, sort of dissuade them from. And I know that because, again, I was wrapped in this ideological mind view that this was the best thing for the planet, the best thing for my health, the best thing for the animals, and was very, very difficult to come out of. But what, as you mentioned to er earlier, was that, you, you know, meat is murder, but the reality is, is that monocropping is murder, as you so eloquently put it. So talk to us about this agricultural sort of intertwinement into what happened to our health. And if you can give some examples of what happened to your health as a, as a vegan and vegetarian, and, and just let the listeners know how, how did we come to this place? So for our first 2 million years on this planet, um, we were not monsters and destroyers. We took our nourishment from inside living biotic communities. So that living community was left to continue. Um, and the complex relationships that make life possible um, are so, I mean, they talk about the web of life, but it is a web that is so complicated. It's, it'd be impossible for our brains to ever conceive how, how complicated this is. But, you know, on a very simple level, you know, you want to just take it down to the most simplest kinds of, you know, functions, I guess, that it, it provides us with oxygen. Um, it provides us with food. <laughs> Uh, on the surface of the planet, it makes soil so that everything else can survive on the land. That's not true for the ocean, obviously, but for land life, it, soil is what makes it all possible. Um, that's sort of, you know, the base substance from which everything else grows. And what makes that happen is there's this miracle called, called photosynthesis. So plants are the people that do that. They can take the sunlight and they can turn it into matter, essentially, um, and it's it's an amazing thing. And that's the the sun is the energy source for all of it. And plants are the people who make that little miracle happen. The rest of us are dependent on all of that in one way or another. Now, the plants don't do it alone. And this is where, of course, it gets really interesting and complicated because, of course, you've got the mycorrhiza. So you've got all this stuff under the surface of the soil that we can't see with the naked eye. I mean, we had no idea any of this was going on until microscopes were invented. Right. And somebody actually looked 
Um, but one tablespoon of soil can contain over a billion living creatures. So I want people to understand like the depth of life that is here. One tablespoon, you can just picture one spoon, over a billion creatures are in there. You can't see any of them, but they are the ones that are doing that basic work of life because they're, um, they're either enhancing what plants do or they're degrading. So as things die, they need to be broken down so that the nutrients are then available. So we have all these different cycles on the planet and the bacteria are really the, the creatures that are doing that basic work of life on a moment to moment, uh, you know, just moment to moment, that's who's making it happen. And we don't even know anything, you know, until a hundred years ago, we didn't even know they existed. So, and it was a big freak out when people freak figured it out because they're not in the Bible. How is it possible? And so people like Darwin really had to grapple with this. Like there's this entire world that's not mentioned like, oh no, now what's gonna happen? Um, and a lot of people just wouldn't even listen to him and other scientists like him because it's like, this can't be true. It's too crazy. Pasteur had the same problem. Um, we're like, this world cannot, it cannot be possible. He's like, no, I've seen it. And, and this, is, this is true. Anyway, so this huge complexity, the problem with agriculture is it destroys all of it. That's the problem. Like literally how we've destroyed the planet. So 10,000 years ago, in a few places around the globe, people start doing this completely other way of life. And it's called agriculture. It's called farming. And so we have to understand in very brute terms, you take a piece of land, <laughs> you clear every last living creature off it, just gone. You clear it off and then you plant it just for humans. So we've got some major problems here. The first is that this is mass extinction. All those plants and animals have nowhere else to go. And this is why right now, every single day, 200 species go extinct. And tomorrow it'll be another 200. And the day after that, it'll be another 200. And there's gonna be nothing left by the time we're done. And I want people to understand the seriousness of this. We can't make, even if you don't care about those other creatures, which frankly is sociopathic, but let's pretend they don't even exist to you as moral creatures, fine, whatever. Um, where are you gonna get your oxygen? I'm, I'm like really desperate to know where you think this is gonna come from. Two out of three animal breaths, are made possible by the plankton in the ocean. Um, they are the ones who do that for us. And they are tiny little creatures. Some of them are more plants, some of them are more animals, but they float around in the ocean. You know, they, they can't really propel themselves. So they're dependent on currents and whatnot. But uh, that's what they do is they produce oxygen. So the oceans are now so acidic from all the carbon that's been released that um, they're having a very hard time repopulating themselves. And when they go down, we're going down with them. This is very scary. I want people to understand. You may not care about plankton because they're tiny and they're green and they're small and you can't really, you know, you need to care about plankton. Okay. And I, just as an aside, there's a, a, a the, the cathedral, the St. John Cathedral in New York City. They have, um, uh, every year they have a, a big, they do the blessing of the animals that's based on the um, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, it was the big animal guy. Um, if you, into your, your Catholic saints. And so they do this thing where they do the blessing and they, um, the very first creature that they bring to the altar for blessing is the plankton. And I just think that's really cool that they figured that out. So they bring a bowl uh, and then they have like bigger and bigger and it sort of ends with an elephant, I think. I don't know, the poor elephant, I hope it's not in captivity. But anyway, um, there are people who know this, uh, but you, you, this is this is where we get our oxygen. So what, is, what does agriculture do? It destroys all of it. Like down to the bacteria, the mycorrhiza, everything gets killed when you plow. You clear that land. Um, what land is supposed to have on it is permanent plant cover. So we call these perennials. These are perennial plants. And they're perennial because they live many, many years. And just use your common sense. A tree could not grow as big as a tree in one season, right? Now I'm contrasting this with the annual 
annual plants. Annuals, they have very big seed heads because they only have one way to reproduce and that's their seed. Most other plants that are long-lived that are perennials, they can reproduce in a number of ways. So I'm looking outside right now my window and I see redwood trees and I see um, uh, blackberries. I see native blackberries and I see invasive Himalayan blackberries. And for the redwood trees, um, they put out pine cones. That's one way that they reproduce is they have these you know, seeds essentially, um, but they also can sprout up from roots in the ground. They can sprout up from stumps. So trees that have fallen for whatever reason, new, new trees can grow from that. And the main way that redwoods actually reproduce, and this is fascinating, is when redwood trees get really old, they fall over. So eventually the day, and they're thousands of years old when they do this, but eventually, you know, age happens and they just fall over and they have what are called burls on the surface of the trunk. So when they're standing up, the burls are just kind of there and you'll see there's like this sort of big lumpy kind of bits that sort of, you know, are extended out from the trunk. And a lot of woodworkers love these. If you cut off the burl, which I don't recommend, but if you do that, there's incredible patterns inside, like it's all swirly. So you can make like beautiful inlay. And so they're very prized by different woodworky people, crafty people. But anyway, the tree falls. And then once there's moisture and whatnot going on along the, the decaying trunk, those burls spring to life. And that's where the new redwoods come from. So when I walk out in my forest, that's what I see is, you know, all the time you get the, oh, and then there's the burl. And then that's where the new trees are going to populate from. But it has three different ways, four different ways to make to make more redwoods, right? Uh, annuals have this one way and it's the giant seed. So everything goes into that seed. Now, annu annuals have a role. The, the, the planet recognizes, life recognizes that bare soil is a disaster for the planet. And it is. It's a biological emergency for the planet. So once that ground is cleared for some reason, so like a fire, a flood, an earthquake, a landslide, something terrible happens uh, and the, the, the land is, it's, it's bare and it's gonna be bare for a while. And this is when the annuals have their moment. So those giant seeds that annuals produce have, have laid dormant in the soil, sometimes for centuries. And now all of a sudden there's no competition because the, the perennials have been cleared away. There's no roots, there's no, there's nothing in the way. So boom, up they sprout. And now you're gonna have this patch of land that's covered in usually very, you know, brightly flowered, um, lovely annual plants. And they're brightly flowered because they're attracting the bees and the pollinators. That's what that's for, <laughs> um, to make more seeds. And then eventually uh, the perennials will knit back together and cover that land completely and it will be gone. But um, those seeds will then again lay dormant for the next emergency. So this is how nature, deals with this emergency of bare ground. The problem is that we as humans went ahead and decided to make this emergency happen year after year after year on every piece of land that we could. There's nothing left for agriculture to take. It took it all. So, you know, anything where agriculture could happen is gone. And this is, you know, a roundabout way of saying 98% of the world's forests and 99% of the world's prairies are gone. And they're gone because of agriculture because humans got really addicted to these foods and the those those annual grains made us do their will uh, by sort of locking into the pleasure centers in our brain, and we were willing to do it for them. So there's this great quote from Richard Manning where he says that the um, that the annual grasses, you know, got us to do this for them. That you know, we waged a war against the perennial grasses and the forests, and uh, and we won. And and it was you know all on behalf of the annual grasses. And so here we are, you know, completely addicted to wheat and corn and rice and whatever, um, destroying our health and our and our way of life uh, and ultimately our planet. So just to give you another number here, one season of planting 
your basic annual crop. So weed or soy or whatever, uh, you can destroy 2000 years of soil in one season. And anybody who doesn't believe me, just Google it, uh, Dust Bowl. Go look at the pictures of the first day of the Dust Bowl in South Dakota, and you will see the farms that lost all of their soil in one day, in one day, all that soil was gone. It's just this enormous cloud that moved across the continent and then across the ocean. It's all that soil. That soil was in places 12 feet deep when the Europeans got there and it's just gone. There's nothing left. So this is the problem with agriculture. It's a drawdown. You're destroying your soil. Every single year that you do this, you're destroying your land. And then what, what are you gonna do? So while that's happening, you're also creating this surplus. This is the problem. Other problem with agriculture is the surplus. And if it can be stored, it can be stolen. And if it can be stolen, you're going to need somebody to protect it. And those people are called soldiers. So agriculture makes that possible. It also makes it inevitable. So as you're drawing down, uh, your population is exploding. Hunter-gatherers are very good at keeping their population at sustainable numbers. Agriculturists are terrible at it. There's this huge rise in population. You're drawing down the resources that your land base has, and eventually you're headed for this thing called collapse. There have been 34 civilizations, so 34 times people have decided we're going to make a, a whole way of life based on agriculture. All 34 have ended in collapse. Mostly they last until the soil gives out, so somewhere between 800 and 2,000 years. But eventually the soil is gone, and this is grim, but the last proteins in the cooking pots are always human, which is to say people are starving and they go on to cannibalism. Um, it's a terrible thing, uh, but this is where it ends every time. And this is not actually intellectually challenging, right? If you take more trees than a forest can produce, eventually there'll be nothing left. It's the same. If you take more fish than a river can provide, eventually that river is going to be nothing but water and sorrow. It's the same with the soil. You're drying down every single year. And you're also producing more and more people who need that soil more and more. And then it's gone. So this is why agricultural societies end up militarized. is because eventually you have to conquer your neighbors. You've used up your own stuff. You've taken all the trees, the fish, the water, the soil. It's all It's all gone. You've either covered it in cement and stone or, you know, right outside the city are these decaying farms, which are running out of soil. Um, there's no food. So you have to conquer people. You're either going to let the thing collapse and all starve or you become militaristic. So this is the pattern of civilization. You've got this bloated power center. So like ancient Rome, um, just one example. Uh, and then you've got all the colonies, the conquered colonies. So you have to conquer your neighbors. So the whole Northern part of, all of that of Africa up into Egypt, all of it, that was the breadbasket for the Roman Empire. In fact, Egypt was considered uh, the, the private property of the Roman emperor because so much food came out of Egypt because of the Nile, because every year that the Nile would flood and bring down all those nutrients. So there was you know, always going to be at least some wheat coming out of, out of Egypt. But if you interfered with the offloading of that food from Egypt as it was you know, shipped into Rome on, on boats, if you did anything to interfere with that process at the, at the dock, um, it was summary execution. That's how important it was because it had to feed the citizens of Rome. If the people weren't fed, there was going to be a, you know, a revolt. There would be a revolution. So that was how they kept them all pacified. It was like, all right, well, here's at least your bread. So you see what happens. Like this just snowballs into every kind of evil thing that we now are trying to stop on this planet. Like you've got slavery. You've got you know militarism. You have genocide. You've got environmental destruction. You've got patriarchy. All of this comes as you, you decide to take up this thing, this crazy thing. And I love this quote from... 
Colin Tudge at the, he said at the um, London School of Economics, and he said, the real question isn't why anybody was slow to take up agriculture, but why anybody took it up at all, since it's so obviously beastly. And I just love that. But yeah, and it's backbreaking labor from, you know, one end of the day to the other. Um, and the only way for the ruling class to have leisure is to have slaves. So immediately with agriculture comes slavery. And again, once you have a vast numbers of people in slavery, you're going to need these people called soldiers who are going to keep them there. So, you know, once again, agriculture makes that it, it makes it possible, but it also makes it inevitable because you're going to have to have. I mean, it, in ancient Greece, for instance, in Athens, which is supposed to be, you know, the birthplace of modern democracy, 90 over 90 percent of the population was enslaved. That was the only way that they could have, you know, the philosophers and the kings and all this you know, doing all their fun stuff in the, you know, the Colosseum and the Parthenon, the Colosseum's Rome, but the Parthenon, whatever, um, all of that stuff had to, you know, to have that kind of leisure as in an agricultural society, somebody has to do the work. So by the year 1800, three quarters of the human beings alive on this planet were living in some kind of serfdom, indenture, or out-and-out -out slavery. Three quarters of the population. Of course, you're going to need soldiers, because we're not going to put up with this otherwise. So that's the year 1800, and that's pretty much the beginning of the fossil fuel age. Now, we've forgotten this because we've been using fossil fuel to do all that labor ever since. But I can guarantee you, as peak oil, as we're declining now on that curve, we're going to remember this pretty soon because um, we're going to have to. And it's not pretty. So I don't know. That's where we are. So this is the problem, right? It's, it's, this is vast. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, people have a hard time engaging with this because uh, it's not that it's that, like I said, intellectually challenging, but emotionally it can be quite challenging because this is the basis of our culture. This is the only life we've ever known. So when you start asking people to question it, they're very confused. They're very confused. And then the vegans come in, right? So the vegans say, oh, it is so terrible to do these things to animals. And I agree. It is horrible. I don't think anybody can make a ar moral argument for factory farming in particular. And I just think, we just set that off. Just We don't even need to discuss it. We just agree. This is horrible. No, no sentient being should go through this. So then you have these questions about, all right, well, here's my plate and I don't see a dead animal on it. Therefore, this must be the food that's peaceful and sustainable and kind and you know nice to animals. And this is the bad news. If what is on your plate is agricultural food, it's not just the death of one animal. It is the death of the entire planet. That's what you're eating when you eat agricultural foods. So it's a lot to ask people to absorb. But this is the problem. The agriculture is where all this starts. We're going to have to stop doing it if we're going to save our planet. And the vegans have just, they're, have just gone down an entirely, they've gone down the wrong path entirely. Like they need to be grappling with the real problem here. And factory farming is a good place to start, but you have to keep going from there. Um, and also like what made factory farming possible because, I mean, it didn't start till 1950, right? Before that, that had never been a pattern that people had used. It didn't make any sense to do it. Grain was too hard to come by. It was too expensive. You would never have done that. The, the whole point of having domesticated animals was that they ate things we didn't eat and they turned it into things we could eat. So they can eat corn stalks. They can eat all kinds of you know, banana peels, um, they can eat the, you know, the part of the grain that we don't eat, which is most of it, because we're only eating the seed, there's there all the rest of that stuff. And it's cellulose. And cows, for instance, any ruminant, 
uh, that's what they do. They take cellulose and they turn it into meat and milk. And so that's why domesticated animals are a thing is because they take things we don't eat and they turn it into things we do eat. And that's just called getting food for most of us. So that is, that's pre-1950. 1950, what's happened? World War II is over. Um, this thing called the Haber-Bosch process has been invented. And what this meant was that, this is actually in World War One. they figured out how to take gas and oil and extract the nitrogen from it. It's very energy intensive, but it can be done. And they needed it to make bombs, essentially. Nitrogen is, you know, the sort of base substance that you need. And so it's this huge big deal that they figured out how to do this. And it changes the the way that humans have engaged in war ever since has been even more dreadful than it was before that. It, you know, it unleashed just a vast amount of destruction in terms of human on human violence, the Haber-Bosch process, because, you know, the bombs now that they can make are just like hellish, hellish kind of uh, kind of things. Um, but uh, the a lot of the scientists stood up and took notice because uh, throughout the 19th century, you've got all kinds of people saying, we are running out of nitrogen. We've destroyed our soil. There's not really any left to take. We've pretty much done the whole planet. Uh, what are we going to eat? This is going to be a major, major problem. This is going to collapse. There's not going to be any food. So the Haber-Bosch process comes along and, and everybody heaves the sigh of relief. Oh, thank God we've got nitrogen again. Now, never mind that we're also going to run out of oil and gas. Like that, that didn't seem to enter into the equation that like these things are actually finite. It didn't matter because at least for now we can we can solve this problem. So along comes this process called the Green Revolution. So by adding this chemically produced nitrogen to the soil and breeding plants to be as small as they could possibly be. So you're trying to get rid of the stuff that we don't need, that we don't want as humans, and then making the seed head as large as those tiny little stalks could possibly support, you could in fact quadruple the amount of food that was produced. And that's what happened. And in response, the human population also quadrupled. Um, I don't actually see this as a net positive because at the end of the day, we're still faced with the same problem, which is there's too many people, we're running out of soil, now we're also running out of oil and gas. This collapse is still coming. We just put it off for a few decades and we've actually made it four times worse. Like instead of just pulling back from this activity, we just went full in. So that was the green revolution. So now here we are. And I'm still going to say that the solution to all of this is to simply stop doing it, that we need to shrink our footprint. We need to shrink the number of people. We can do this in ways that support human rights completely. Um, this has already been proven around the world. We know how to do it. It's a political problem, you know. It's not a problem of chemistry or physics. It's not a problem of human nature. Um, it's just the political institutions that are driving this. And this is what we need to face. Anyway, here's your plate. Is there a dead animal on it, or is there not a dead animal on it? That's not actually the question. The question is dramatically larger because there are dead animals involved no matter what you're eating. This was the thing I did not want to face as a vegan. If you are eating a pile of rice, you've got so many dead rivers, I don't even know how to count them. And you've got all the fish that used to live there. You've got all the marine life at the dead zone at the bottom of that river. All of that's gone. And it's not just one individual animal, it's entire species, 200 species every single day. That's what's being destroyed to eat your vegan food. Whoever's eating that food, I don't care if you're a vegan or not, if you're eating agricultural food, that's the cost is the entire planet. And I'm going to contrast with the kind of food that I assume you eat and that I know I eat, which is as much as I possibly can, you know, the, the grass-based, perennial-based farming that involves ruminants on grass, it's exactly the opposite. You're repairing the soil, you're repairing the habitat, you're repairing the, the water table, uh, you're sequestering vast amounts of carbon, like there really is hope for our planet. And you're also repairing local economies, you know, you're repairing all the social relationships, 
All of that can happen by simply eating one cow a year. And it's one life. It's not the entire planet, you know, and it's, and it's a way of eating that actually supports the cycle of life rather than destroying it. And that's our, really our only option. This was the hardest thing for me. We don't have a death-free option. And I tried to grow my own food and I learned the hard way. There was no way to do it without killing. And that was very, very hard on me as a vegan to come to terms with that. And I made my own peace with it in, you know, my own sort of sneaky way, which was that I got chickens and ducks. Um, I was like, fine, they'll do the killing for me. But I was lying to myself. Come on, somebody had to kill those insects and those other animals. So fine, you know, I let somebody else do it for me, but it was still happening. And so those were the things that I couldn't face. Anyway, I'm kind of on a ramble now. I'm not sure whether I've answered your question or not, but. There's been a few moments in in my podcasting where I, I've said to the my guests that I feel like taking this mic in front of me and dropping it. And this is another one of them. So I really appreciate <laughs> those, especially coming from you and how profound, as I mentioned, the book is. You know, it was interesting, Lier, as we sort of segue and move over to the nutritional side of things from a plant-based argument to, you know, adding animal foods back in the diet. But initially I should have, talked about what you found out is that, you know, for something to live, something else has to die. You mentioned that. And again, that wasn't, I should have thought about myself dying because my health was so poor. I literally looked and felt like I was dying. My hair was falling out. My skin was cracking, nails falling out, brain fog, dental issues. Uh, I was down to 127 pounds at my lightest. I looked emaciated. Um, I lost my job. I, my testosterone was in the toilet. I couldn't procreate, you know, all the things we know. And we'll get into a little bit more. We share something in in our dear friend of uh, Betaine HCL now. Yes, me too. Um, yeah. so we, we share that in common. So when I heard you say it, I was like, oh my gosh, I have a fellow <laughs> gastroparesis person here. Yes, right. Oh my goodness, Lier. But, you know, thinking about that, I should have really been putting two and two together, but in my brain fog state, you know, I was literally dying. So I had to add animal foods back in, but I came from it from the, from the angle that I first found Sally K. Norton and the fact that plants defended themselves was just yes unbeknownst to me. So again, we'll get into this nutritional argument with lectins and stuff like that, but that was what I found. And then I found Dr. Baker on Joe Rogan talking about the benefits of animal foods. But then later on, you know, I've had this come up, Lier, is that I've been questioned a few times by folks, obviously, that are still either entrenched in the vegan diet or thinking about animal foods back in. But I told them that I have never thought about what is on my plate more profoundly than since I added animal foods back in, even as a vegan, because like yourself, I did not appreciate what it took to get those foods to my plate. And one of the best things I heard you say is, you know, the question, does your food build topsoil or destroy it? Right. Right. (laughs) But it's just an incredible thing when you start to think about that appreciation for where your food is coming from. So thank you for that. And and folks, the book is a vegetarian myth. Make sure I'll put links in the show notes to get it. It, Lier goes into all kinds of, of detail in the book, including her now infamous story of her slugs in her garden, slugs. which I won't, I won't get her to repeat today, but you can read about it in the book. But everybody Lier, loves that story. They're like, oh, tell us that story. <laughs> it is such a great story. And I know a mutual friend of ours, Casey Ruff from Boundless Body, oh, he yeah, absolutely Casey. adores that story. And that's where, ironically, I really first heard it as I, to heal myself, I listen to podcasts. That's why I'm doing what I do today, because sure. I, I want to get it back out there. And I heard your first interview with Casey when I was sitting there going, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I know whenever I start this, I've got to speak to this lady. So full circle, here we are today. Aww. So again, thank you. Um, nutritionally though, you've yeah. heard a couple of the things that happened to me. I really want to dive into this because what has been profoundly helpful has been sharing my, especially sure. coming from a male perspective, which is 
wanting in this area so yeah. badly. I mean, we yeah, have yeah. a lot of women out there that are, but the men for whatever this machismo thing where they don't want to tell about what happened to them. I've told the listeners before, my testosterone left me, my libido left me, my brain fog. I, it was mm. a very serious state. So yeah, you mentioned your degenerative disc disease that was, yeah. you know, you now know, thanks to your past dietary choices, what else happened? We, we talked about, <laughs> there's quite a well, bit. Well, yeah, the first thing that happened, I would say would be um, the blood sugar issues which I had no idea what it was. I just knew that even just a few months in starting this vegan diet, just eating nothing but sugar, um, <laughs> which I did not know was sugar. I mean, that's how silly the whole thing is. I thought it was, oh, it's complex carbohydrate. That's the good thing to eat. That keeps you from being diabetic. Like half my family's diabetic. Everybody gets type two. Like we're totally those people, you know? I was the last person in the world who should have been doing this crazy diet, but I didn't know that. So you know, we were told in school, and I, of course, I read all the books, complex carbohydrate, that's the way you do it. That will keep your blood sugar steady. Yay, complex carbs. And that entire time I was vegan, I really want people to understand this. I did not once eat white sugar. I did not once eat white rice. If I was even like at a restaurant, which was rare, um, you know, if there was white rice, it was like, oh, no, I can't eat that. It's white. I have to can only eat the brown rice. I wouldn't eat like jelly if it had sugar in it. Like, it's a pile of fruit. What do you think it is? But I was like, no, there's sugar. That's the bad thing. Uh, no white flour, everything was whole grain, whole bean, all of it. Like I was so super strict about this. It doesn't matter. It's all just sugar at the end of the day. Nobody told me that. So a few months in, I was having these like horrible episodes, which I now understand were the blood sugar crash. So for anybody who's not onto this yet, what happens is you eat a pile of sugar. Now you can call it complex carbohydrate if it makes you feel better. But I'm telling you, it's not going to make you feel better physically because it's a pile of sugar. The point of digestion is it gets broken down. That's the only way it's going to cross over the brush border through your intestines into your bloodstream. It has to be broken down into tiny little pieces. So for carbohydrate, that means sugar. It's broken up into simple sugars. That's what your body does with it. So now you've got a load of sugar and it's all entered your bloodstream and it might be two minutes slower than white sugar, but it's still sugar at the end of the day and your body has to deal with it. It's all just sugar in it comes. Now what happens? Oh, it's a biological emergency because our brains especially can only survive inside a really narrow range of blood sugar. If it's too high or too low, you can fall into a coma and die. It's not a joke. This happens to diabetics. Yeah, it's very scary. And your body, your brain is like, what the hell? I can't, I can't do this. So it's an emergency and the emergency response is insulin. Your pancreas will release this huge, you know, sort of wad of insulin comes streaming in to your blood and it grabs everything that it can. It's a very blunt instrument. Okay. This is how I know we were not designed to do this. It's a really blunt, it's like a sledgehammer and it grabs everything that it can out of your bloodstream and it shoves it into your fat cells for storage as fast as it can. Just get it out of your bloodstream so your brain doesn't collapse. Well, that our brains were dead. So that's the emergency response. But because it's an emergency response, it's not finely tuned. So now, of course, having grabbed everything and shoved it out of the way, uh, that insulin is not doing you any favors because you're now too low. So that narrow range, you're, you're now, you've done the roller coaster, now you're on the way down, now you're too low. So now your blood sugar is too low. And this is what I was experiencing just a few months in was this horrible feeling of, I need to eat something. And if I don't eat something, you know, I felt like I was going to die. You know, it was like, it just felt like life or death. Um, and I'd be shaking a little sweaty, you know, and like, I'm going to cry kind of like, this is just not right. <laughs> it's not right. Uh, I need to eat. So I would eat another, what do you know, load of complex carbohydrate. 
And it was a little bit puzzling at first because I had never really felt this before and I didn't know what it was and I'd never heard it described before. And so I just accepted it as life. Like, all right, well, this is just how it is. And I would feel better when I ate that little bit of whatever came next, uh, you know, in my carbohydrate day, but then it would happen again two hours later. And the problem, of course, is that if you do this over and over again, I mean, it's one thing to eat a little bit of honey once a year or twice a year as a hunter gatherer, you know, you might do that, but um, I was doing this three, four times a day, and then it was five or six times a day, and then it was eight times a day. And by the end of my life as a vegan, I was eating every 20 minutes. I mean, it was just a constant stream of little nibbles of food so that I didn't fall over and die. And it's a ridiculous way to live. And I see people in my life now who still live this way, you know, like you plan whatever the meeting is for this thingy that we're at, whatever, like, no, we have to have a snack at 10 o'clock. And they say, because of my blood sugar, I'm like, oh, sweetheart, you don't have to do this. I can fix you. <laughs> You'll just listen to me. You don't have to, to hell, you don't have to live like this. You can go hours without even thinking about food. I guarantee you will feel better. Um, but you got to stop eating the carbohydrate. It's just all it is. You just got to stop. There's a few hard days in there. The first three, four days is honestly rough, but then you're over it. Because of course, Pavlov's dogs, you've essentially trained your pancreas to release insulin every time you put food in your mouth. Your pancreas has to realize, oh, it's fine. You don't actually need me anymore. And it can rest the poor thing. Anyway, um, that's the blood sugar problem. So that happened right away. And that only got worse and worse. And at this point, I have no insulin receptors left. I just slaughtered those poor babies. I mean, it's just done. Some people can resensitize their insulin receptors. If you haven't done exactly what I did for as long as I did, you might be able to get some of that back. But in my case, no. If I if I stray even a tiny bit from the plan here, I will feel it. Um, I'm not saying I don't ever binge on chocolate once in a while, but it's not a life plan. Um, I can't do it. I feel so sick for 48 hours afterwards. So I just can't. It's done. It's a done deal. It's like they're just they're fried. So your insulin, it, it locks into there's a receptor on the surface of the cell. So it's like a key fitting into a lock. And if you have a really old key, you know that it wears down and it stops working. So and then you have to replace the whole thing. Um, and that's what happens over time if you just keep abusing the system. So that's the, that's number one. That was the, the first problem that I had. Probably second problem was the dry skin um, and the dry hair. And I got this sort of gray, sallow complexion. I mean, I was 16, 17 years old. I should have looked all like lovely and rosy and like, oh, mate with me. And I didn't. I was just like corpse. That happened pretty fast too. And that's just basically not having uh, any animal fats. Some proteins as well. You know, you need collagen in there to like make your skin happen. But the when I gave up being the vegan, the, the first thing that um, I started to eat again was eggs. So I called myself like vegan plus eggs. Because I got onto the low carb thing before I figured out that the whole vegan thing was just a disaster. And so that was about two years when I tried to do low carb, but still be a vegan. And that was really rough because the only thing you can eat is soy and some nuts. I mean, it, that was, and, oh, oh, and um, what's that stuff that's made out of gluten? The seitan, that like fake meat. Oh, it's I just think... pure, literally pure gluten. It's, that's what it is, right? So I ate that a lot. And, and of course, soy, I just lived on soy. So I did, the blood sugar problems were way better eating the low carb, a lot of peanut butter, but dramatically worse on every other front because of course that soy was just like the worst possible thing I could have been eating. Anyway, uh, yeah, but I started eating eggs at that point because it was like, there just was nothing to eat. And within two days of eating eggs every day, I woke up one morning and looked in the mirror. I could not believe how different I looked. My skin just was transformed overnight from just from eating the eggs, a little bit of animal fat, a little bit of animal protein. And um, I had spent 20 years 
every time I moved my arms and legs, my skin hurt because it couldn't bend, which I don't know. I didn't even think about it. It was just something I was so used to. I figured it was just life and I could actually move my arms and legs and it didn't hurt. Like my skin flexed when I moved the way it's supposed to. It was, it was a miracle. Just eggs alone did that for me. Yeah. And I just, I remember just that day, just running back to the mirror. Like I look completely different. Like my face, just my skin was like, what the hell? This is amazing. Anyway, um, eggs, eat eggs. So uh, that happened pretty much right away. And that, and that just got worse and worse. And also when I, then I was living in New England in Massachusetts and it was so cold and so dry in the winter. I mean, my skin was bleeding in Fe by February. It hurt so bad. It kept me up at night. That's how dry it was. For, this went on for years. And I just thought, oh, well, I have dry skin. I don't know. No moisturizer helped because it's internal. It's not external. So it really, the barrier didn't help. You know, I needed things I didn't have in my skin. So that happened pretty quickly on. And of course the dry hair, I didn't lose my hair. I know people who lost their hair. I didn't ever, it didn't ever really get thin, but it was so dry. Um, so that happened. Uh, and then uh, two years in, I started to get this very strange pain in my spine. And it took me years to actually get a diagnosis. Part of that is that they didn't have MRIs in the 1980s. So there really wasn't a way to get a diagnosis. And the other thing was I was just simply too young that they did. They weren't taking me seriously because like your spine isn't supposed to fall apart when you're 18. And I hadn't been in an accident. So there was no precipitating incident. I was like, there's, there's just, there's a mystery. We've got no idea. Finally, I did end up getting an MRI in 1995. Uh, so 15 years on uh, and they're like, oh, well, this is not a mystery. <laughs> your spine's completely falling to pieces here. I'm like, all right fine. Good. Yeah, here we go. Um, that you don't get that one back. It's your joints. That level of degeneration is you can reduce the inflammation, which I have done very dramatically. So I'm in a lot less pain than I was at two, the year 2000 was when I started eating or 1999 end of that was when I started eating meat again and, um, or animal products anyway, and then meat very soon after that. And it took a few years, but the, I'm in dramatically less pain than I was just from eating, you know, more to the human template, the omega-6s, omega-3s, like all of that definitely plays a role in the level of pain that you might experience. But for some of us, this is permanent. Your joints are very poorly vascularized. That includes, you know, your spine, the, the, the joints there. Once they have achieved that level of injury, there's just, they don't build back. So that's a done deal. And I, do, I very, very, I, I highly encourage people not to do this to themselves. Like if I wanted fentanyl, I can get it. Like that's the level of they just look at my, yeah, okay, you, what do you want? <laughs> we can do nothing for you. Like, I know, I know. And I don't want fentanyl. I was on fentanyl for two years, just FYI. At the end of my vegan life, it was, the pain was so extraordinary. It was like, I'll just, I'll take whatever I can get. I mean, pretty much just lived lying on the couch. I mean, I just, I could barely stand up. It hurt so bad. And now it's like, I mean, I can stand up for 20 minutes. Um, I can sit for hours at a time and I barely notice it. I've gotten a lot better and it's, and then going carnivore, it was interesting to me. I wasn't expecting a change, but it was like another notch or two of pain relief just from the plant lectins and, you know, the oxalates. Those accumulate in your joints, you know? So that I was a surprise. I was not expecting. I got some miracles from carnivore, but that was a minor miracle for me, for sure. Anyway, uh, that happened. So that was two years in. And throughout that sort of two-year period, I my menstruation just basically came to a halt. So there's just like, no way you're getting a baby, honey. And now I understand. And and the, the thing to know is that poor cholesterol is this really life-affirming substance. We need to eat it. If we don't eat it, our livers are, you know, tasked with making it, but we really cannot make enough that is for what our body requires. And cholesterol is like the mother substance. It's the mother hormone. It's what we build all our hormones 
from. It's what we need to build every hormone in your body. And that includes your sex hormones. So animal bodies have this amazing thing that if there's some kind of a disaster or an emergency, we have ways to shut off things that aren't needed now and we'll deal with it later. So for instance, there's a lion coming towards you and you need to run. Uh, you will get a huge hit of adrenaline. And what adrenaline does is it, it will drive all the energy in your body as fast as it can to your large muscles so that you can do fight or flight because you might need to pound that lion. You might need to run from that lion, climb a tree really fast. But I don't know whether we can outclimb lions on a tree. I've got no idea, but you might have to try it if you don't know what lions are capable of. You can't outclimb a bear. I know that. I live, there's bears where I live. We see them all the time, but there's no point in climbing a tree. They can climb faster than you. So there's ways to deal with bears. I'm actually friends with a lot of the bears. I'm not afraid of them, but if you did need to run from a bear, you don't want to climb a tree. Anyway, um, that's what adrenaline does. It's its main thing is to just drive that in insulin into your muscles. And what it means is it shuts down everything else. So you don't want to be using energy uh, to digest your food. You can handle that later, but that's why under high stress, like you know, if somebody suddenly has a gun to your head or, you know, if you're on, on the, the front line of a battle, like really high stress, life threatening situations that humans find themselves in, what adrenaline does in that moment. I mean, you know, you hear about this, you just evacuate your bowels. I mean, people have just that's what happens. Um, uh, you might urinate down your leg if in, in, in states of extreme terror. That's what will happen to people. That's why that's what adrenaline does. It clears everything out so that you can run or fight. So. <laughs> Adrenaline is not something you want to be doing to yourself every day. And uh, okay, that's the adrenaline thing. I want to go back to the hormones first. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because you have a way in your body to shut things down when you don't need them so that you can use the energy for other things. If you're not eating enough cholesterol, you need hormones just to keep you alive moment to moment. You don't necessarily need your sex hormones hormones on a moment to moment basis. In fact, your body is, is making a really, uh, a very wise decision in saying, it looks to me like we're starving here. Might not be a good time to reproduce. We're shutting that shit down. You need hormones right now just to keep you going from moment to moment. You let us know when you find some better food or when it's the end of winter. Uh, when the famine is over, we can talk about the sex hormone business. But until then, you're not getting any sex hormones. So all of that gets shut down. Um, and instead, you know, your body just keeps you alive. This is what happens when you don't eat enough cholesterol. If you don't have enough to go around, you're not going to get any sex hormones out of it. And this is why your uh, testosterone collapsed. It's why my estrogen collapsed. It's why I didn't menstruate, you know, for 20 years without enough animal fat, without enough cholesterol, you're just not going to get the juiciness of life. And your body is making the correct decision to just shuttle that off. So that was it for me. I mean, it just, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and I, the only thing good in, for me in this story is that I did not actually want to have a baby, but that would have been really heartbreaking. You know, and I've met so many women who um, this is such a thing, you know, where they they cannot get pregnant and they don't know why. And I'm sitting here like chewing up, like I can fix this. You, It's like 90 percent of the time. It's like all you need to do is take out the industrial seed oils. Please, dear God, do not ever, ever, ever eat soy again and eat some animal fat. I promise you like it's, this. It's so likely that that will fix your problem. And it's just really hard because like people don't want to hear it. You know, they, they're still caught up in the low fat, high carb, whatever thing, um, especially if they've got an ideological attachment to it. It's like, uh, if you let me talk to you and you're willing to engage, there's so much I can tell you about this. And I, 
it's so likely that I will be able to fix this. You just give it six months on this diet. You could have the best baby ever. And they just, so many of them don't want to hear it. Um, so anyway, that's what happened to me. Um, so yeah, that, that was just, that we just shut that part down. So, okay. We've already sort of mentioned how plants fight back. Uh, soy is really great at this because it has, um, things that look very much like animal hormones. They're not quite, but they look very much like it. So your body will take them up as if it's estrogen. And then it, it will block the actual estrogen from doing its job in your body. Um, and so every time you eat soy, you're actually not getting the estrogen that you do need. And you're getting this sort of faux estrogen that in fact does really bad things to you. And so between the soy and the not having any animal fat, that was just it. It was just my reproductive organs were just, you know, on ice. Um, and I know this for a fact because <laughs> uh, I started eating, you know, the animal got off the vegan thing, started eating meat and I started to get somewhat of a menstrual cycle back, but it was still kind of wonky. And then I stumbled into the Western price stuff and I really did a deep dive into soy, um, exactly what was wrong with soy. And I was really horrified because I was still eating a lot of soy at that point. And, you know, it's one of those moments where you think, what have I done to myself? Because I was really eating that person that last two years of my vegan, you know, when I was still trying to be low carb and all, I was just, it was just soy all the time. And I was like, yeah, boy, everything got so much worse. Like my spine got dramatically worse. Everything got dramatically worse when I was eating the soy. Uh, so I went cold turkey on it. I was like, all right, I, I have to accept this was a bad thing that I did. We're, we're not eating it anymore. No more soy. And within a few weeks, I got I got my period. And then from that point forward, and I'm not exaggerating, it was every 28 days, you could have set your clock by it until I hit menopause. And this was after 20 years of barely menstruating. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And I was like, what did I do to myself? That one was so dramatic. So the soy, I'm telling you, take the soy out. Soy is not food. It's a drug. It is a drug. And the soybean knows what it's doing. It says, you eat me, I'm going to make sure you don't get any babies. It's like the best kind of chemical warfare you could do on an animal. You eat this? Oh, yeah, you're going to be so sorry. I mean, along with all the other stuff that soy does, the stomach aches and the tryptin inhibitors and like all the other things, uh, it is very, very good at making sure it will not get eaten because you're not going to reproduce if you eat it. Uh, you, oh, was there anything else? Yeah, I had the depression the anxiety, the exhaustion, all of that, that like, you know, your, your brain is just completely unstable all the time. And I, I say this as an example, but it was really true. If I couldn't find my wallet or my keys, it was like massive disaster. And I would just sit on the floor and cry. It was like, there was no bounce in my brain. It was nothing. I could handle nothing. You know, any little stressor was just, I can't, I can't do it. It's just terrible. It's like, there's I, now it's like, all right, I'll find my keys. Who cares? Like they're here somewhere. I didn't walk away on their own, but I just remember a time I was just sitting on the floor and on the floor. Like I couldn't even make it to a chair. I would just sit on the floor, just collapse and cry because I couldn't find my wallet. Like you, you should have a little more, just a little more bounce in your brain to be a functioning adult in this world. Like, it's not like I was two, you know, was like as a grown up person. So that's between the blood sugar problems. That's that will do that to you. You have mentioned the betaine. Yeah, I, I am now on betaine too, pretty much forever. So that adrenaline that we talked about, yes, it shuts down your digestive process. So every time that you're on that blood sugar roller coaster, um, you, one of the the comp the one of the hormones that your your body needs, one of the substances that it that it will it will use to keep you alive is adrenaline. So on the bottom part of that that kind of emergency that you're in now you're you're going to be making adrenaline to keep that going. So you will burn out your adrenal glands. 
Um, but in the presence of all that adrenaline on a you know constant daily, you know, six times a day basis, you're shutting down your, your stomach's capacity to produce hydrochloric acid or your pancreas, whatever makes it. And so you, I mean, I've just permanently damaged my, my capacity to make acid. And it sounds like you've done the same thing. And this is why this condition that we have is called gastroparesis. Um, diabetics are the ones who get that. And I, I don't think I quite got to diabetes level, but I was really close by the time I was done. Um, and that's why it's the adrenaline just constantly shutting down your body's capacity to make hydrochloric acid because your body thinks you're in a state of an emergency, which you're not, but you are biologically in a state of emergency. And that's why adrenaline is called into this picture to keep you alive. And so, you know, having done this permanent damage, I now take betaine hydrochloride every day and it, it completely cleared that up, but I don't know about you. I mean, I was, it wasn't quite 20 years, but I would say 16 years of that, the, the last chunk of that vegan, you know, the, the, the bulk of it anyway, I just felt nauseated all the time. Like the only time I did not feel sick to my stomach was if I didn't eat for like two days and then it would finally clear, you know, there was enough that might it would finally empty my stomach. But I've met a lot of people who have done this to themselves as well. And I'm like, Ooh, I can fix you. This is an easy one. Just go to the store, buy this stuff. It's over the counter. Just take it and you will feel so much better. You may have to take it forever though, depending on how long you did this crazy thing to yourself. So let me just tell you that something came to me whilst you were talking about soy in particular, and it's a story that I've never shared with the listeners before. About three years into my vegan journey, I was sent to a conference and I was a very strong advocate for the diet to the point where the conference was catered. It was a, a one where we had to get a accreditation at the end of it and none of the food was vegan. So I literally put together all my own food and brought it to the conference. Of course. Yep. And then the lecturer, because of how often I needed to eat, think back uh -huh. to your insulin resistance yeah. type yeah. Uh, discussions there and burning out my receptors, I was literally eating every 45 minutes. And yeah. he at one point, and I had all my stuff laid out in front of me on my desk <laughs> and he, he paused and he said, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, James has to eat again. Uh, we're just going to pause for a minute. And I went, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, God. And do you know that after he said that and stopped the lecture, I actually broke down into a puddle and of tears and excused myself. He felt of so Of course you did. I did. Of course I did. Of course you did. And he came out to me and to his credit, and I never remembered this till now. He said, James, I couldn't help but notice you're drinking a carton of soy milk. And at the beginning stages, I was heavily into soy. Oh, yeah. And he said, let, let me just tell you, I'm not a vegan. I admire what you're doing, but I also, because of a lactose intolerance, switched to a lot of soy in my diet. And he said, I noticed that I start to develop breasts as a man. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I literally, he said, so I'm yeah. warning you. He said, yeah. if there's nothing else I can do and God bless him now, I, I would get you to switch from soy. So I at least listened to that. My Good. downfall was I switched to completely almond milk and the high oxalate bomb that that was and destroyed my gut. So I still yeah. ended up losing there. It was anyway. I it's just wanted, all terrible stuff. Uh, None it of is. it's edible. It's not edible. No, no. And yeah. as you so succinctly put it and on a prior podcast, and it's something I wanted to talk to you about, Liera, was if you had ever experienced this, you know, you mentioned that the soil is in a drawdown state now. Um, you also mentioned that vegans, even though at the beginning stages, they're in a health drawdown because of the dietary yeah. choices. Yep. So I wondered, like myself and like so many others, if you would experience any of, any of that sort of bliss at the beginning stages where you probably cut out, like I did, a lot of the processed foods 
and felt pretty good for a while at the state first beginning stages of your veganism. And as I talk to more people as they go along, the deficiencies rear their ugly head. Did that ever happen to you on your journey? I didn't really have that because I was not a big junk food person. Um, my mother was not, she wasn't like super strict, but like we didn't have candy and chocolate lying around the house and we never had soda. So there, there were like real lines that she drew about, we're not just buying junk. Nobody needs more sugar, like kind of things. And so I had already, I, th I thought, I think I had a pretty good head on my shoulder, even as a teenager. Like I just didn't drink soda. Yeah. So I, I wasn't like a big junk food person. So when I went vegan, it wasn't, I didn't really get that, that a lot of people get where it's like, oh my God, I felt so great for six months. I didn't really feel that. I felt pretty the same until <laughs> the blood sugar stuff started, which was pretty early on. It, for me, it was more a, like an emotional, spiritual sort of high, like, oh, I'm doing this really great thing. And okay, it sets me apart from everybody, but I don't care because I'm going to do the right thing. So I felt very righteous, you know, and there's definitely something that comes with that, that is, I mean, for good and for bad, like you want people to feel good about doing the good thing, but also there's a way that you can get, you know, sort of self-righteous about that. And that now you're a proselytizer and nobody wants to hear that. So, you know, there's a balance there between feeling like I'm a, a good conscientious person and I'm an obnoxious brat. Like, I'm, I'm not sure that I always sort of, you know, was on the right side of that line throughout my vegan days. But um, no, I can't say that I felt that that really that initial rush of, of health did not happen to me. Um, I, I absolutely believe that it happens to other people, because if you're taking out a lot of the junk food, you know, I wasn't eating at McDonald's. Like so there wasn't a lot of like junk for me to clear out. So I, I didn't really get that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, you mentioned the mental stuff as well. Um, the depression and anxiety. I was rife with it at the end there, uh, Lier, to the point where my GP wanted to put me on antidepressants and I was trying to explain to him, but I've never been depressed in my life. But he says, mm -hmm. yeah, you're clearly showing signs of it. Mm -hmm. And now looking back, and you mentioned, you know, since going carnivore, so sort of that next level, we we often, and the people I speak to call it the carnivore zen, where you're just yeah. calm now, calm. steady Eddie all the way. I just feel like nothing can rock me no matter what's, whereas before, like you said, puddle on the floor, if the cup's yeah. built, like that's it. And even being low carb did a lot of that for me, but honestly, going carnivore, there was a whole nother, I don't know how to describe it. There was this whole other level that happened in my brain where it was like, wow, I just feel so solid. And it just, yeah, I was not expecting anything more to happen emotionally. And it, it did. So I, plants really are trying to kill us. <laughs> it's so true. Lier, I'm so conscious of our time today. I want to thank you for taking the time out. Also, I want to let the listeners know that I hope that we can do this again, because as I mentioned to you, I have a ton of other things that I'd love to talk to you about on this subject. But in parting, I just wanted to leave them with a little bit of hope. I mean, we've talked about the state of our planet a little bit and the state of our soil in particular and what's happening and what has caused this sort of shift with agriculturalism into this plant-based vegan way of eating that is clearly bad for our health. What can you leave the listeners with in terms of hope? I know speaking to a lot of the folks out there, just this little sort of grassroots pun intended movement that we have going on now with people looking towards regenerative agriculture or, and like myself looking towards purchasing grass-fed ruminant meat and getting their health back, which also leads to getting their mind back, when that, which right. then leads you to start thinking about the bigger picture. What can you leave them with? I don't think it's too late. 
Um, I think we can still sequester the carbon. Um, I think we can still repair the, you know, the dead rivers. I think we can grow the soil back, uh, but we have to stop doing agriculture. So there's a lot of great resources now that will walk you through this and that will get you hooked up into these movements if you want to be part of it. Even if you just want to buy the right food, um, there's great websites that can tell you where to get it if you want to participate, even on that level. It's important. You know, that every dollar you spend at a local farm is a dollar that's not going into some huge corporate coffer somewhere and that is going to help the people who are on the literally on the ground doing that repair. So go to eatwild.com and they have a state-by-state -state breakdown of grass-based farms. And she's also written a few books. Her name's Joe Robinson. She's written a few good books that will explain to you why this is important and how to do it right. I would also highly recommend Sacred Cow by Diana Rogers. There's a book and a, a, a movie that you can watch about that. Also, Alan Savory is sort of the main guy here who figured a lot of this out. He has an amazing TED Talk, really easy to watch, and he will walk you through the millions of acres now that are that are where people are using his methods to restore habitat, you know, repair the earth, you know, repair the waterways. Like there's now rivers in Africa that are 10 miles longer than anybody even knew they could be. That's how much water they've been able to hold in the soil by simply letting the grasses and the ruminants come home. Um, and that's all we have to do is stop destroying and it will come home. And that includes us. We get to go home. So be part of this instead. This is this is the life affirming thing that we need to be doing. And yeah, find the better information because it's out there. So I would start with those resources and then you can write to James, you can write to me and, and we'll tell you more good things. So I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes. In addition okay. to your website, in addition to where they can find the book, I'll make sure that's all there. And I just want to, because literally, and again, thank you for your getting on so early with me this morning where you're at in the world. I'm a little further ahead in the time zones, but I want it because it is close to breakfast or just around the breakfast in your time. And you you end your chapter to save the world in, in the vegetarian myth with talking about breakfast throughout it. So I just wanted to finish with this last quote from the last succinct, impactful paragraph. And that read, to save the world, we must know it. We must face when where the damage lies, what human activities in whatever mixture of hubris and ignorance have done, no matter what it means to our identities, our securities, and our dreams. And I just want to say thank you, Lier, for writing this book. It's an absolute honor and privilege to have you on here today. I, I just really mean that from the bottom of my heart to the things we share similarly in, in our journey to the advocacy work you've done. It's a pleasure to, to chat with you and I'm looking forward to the next time we are able to do it again. Well, thank you. And thank you for all your hard work in the world too. It's, it's going to take all of us. So thanks for being part of it. Thank you, Lear. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And that's a wrap on this episode of Carnivorous Chats. If you've made it this far, I want to say thank you for listening and also thank you in advance for liking, subscribing, or sharing this episode. Thanks again to Equip Foods, Carnivore Snacks, and the Carnivore Bar. Don't forget to check the link in the show notes to get a discount on their products. Until the next time, be well 